Welcome to People of Purpose, a podcast series of interviews with people doing meaningful work and living with heart. The series is hosted by Joanna Scott, and guests come from nearly every field you can imagine. People of Purpose sits under the website MakeDo Co. For more content, visit wearemakedo.com.au. Lauren Kaplan is a community strategist and disruptive innovation specialist, passionate about new and innovative ways of doing business. She co-founded Collaborative Lab with author Rachel Botsman and currently heads up community at Reinventure Fund, an Australian venture capital firm focused on investing in disruptive startups in the fintech space. She's also the co-founder of Yellow Balloon Ventures, a business that has started and run two co-working spaces in Sydney, Common Room and Homework. As impressive as this CV is, it doesn't do you justice, Lauren. Part of what makes you so interesting as a people of purpose is that your personality and colour is imbued in everything you do. So with great pleasure, welcome to People of Purpose. Thank you, Jo. It's <laughs> a lovely introduction. <laughs> so I want to start with your earlier work with collaborative consumption. So the internet, economic realities and the desire to live more simply with less stuff fueled the evolution of the sharing economy, an area that Time magazine listed as one of the 10 ideas that will change the world. So for people who are not familiar with this, this is Airbnb, Car Next Door, Airtasker, Uber. And you co-founded Collaborative Consumption as a way of tracking that trend and helping entrepreneurs understand and embrace it. What was in the zeitgeist when you decided to kick off this venture? It's a, it's a really great story for me, I think, because it was probably a pivotal moment in me turning my career into something that was really all about purpose. I um, was working had a great job within an architectural firm in Sydney leading up special projects, community training and development internally as well as communications externally. Uh, But after hours I was working on a project called Brightest Young Minds um, which was about holding a conference for a hundred young people to learn about I guess early concepts of social innovation in a time, so this is 2009, in a time where I don't think the concept of social innovation was um, really well articulated, nor was it considered a viable career path. Um, and That's my, so true. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it was really that um, you know you could you could do nonprofit and charity work, and you could have a job, mm-hmm. but the idea that your work could hit both of those points was was really quite new. And the experience that I had attending this conference in the first place was what illuminated my mind to that possibility. Uh, and through my involvement with that, I was actually introduced to Rachel Botsman. Uh, and she was in the final stages of writing her manuscript uh, for her book, What's Mine is Yours, The Rise of Collaborative Consumption. And she started articulating this concept to me um, about you know, car sharing, this new business called Airbnb, which I'd never heard of. Uh, and you know, I'd been car sharing since 2007 just because I thought it made sense. I didn't want to own a car and was really supportive of that idea. But it, the idea that it stood for a much larger way of living and that a huge number of businesses were emerging at that time, fostering that kind of way of life was just incredible to me. Uh, So I stayed connected with Rachel and when she asked if I would work with her to build a global movement out of these ideas, it was not a tough decision to Mm -hmm. quit my job and and really take the leap. Um, But in saying it wasn't a tough decision, it was a huge change in my my own lifestyle. I had had full-time work since leaving university 
uh, and I was now committing to sort of starting something essentially part-time, looking for other ways to support my own income mm. in that period because of something that I actually really believed in. And I guess, you know, fast forward five years uh, later, you know, sort of early last year, certainly the sharing economy has taken on a life of its own and, and I think yeah. it was the right move to make, um, but it was, it's been, it was a pretty incredible journey. So what skills did that experience teach you? Oh, I can imagine wow. it was so different to anything you'd done before. Yeah, there was a lot of panic, a lot of stress. That I think, um, <laughs> I mean, I, I fundamentally believed in what I was doing and I was never concerned about having chosen the wrong pathway to, to pursue. Um, I believed that we could turn it into something that was viable for us. Um, obviously, you know, my parents were fully supportive, but there was always, it, it started to raise questions about, you know, how do you create a full income out of, you know, how do you live off something that's essentially a passion project that, that becomes more involved? You know, I was doing a lot of work, a lot of travel, uh, and not always feeling, um, well, feeling very different to how I would if I was just being employed by somebody, you know? Yeah. It was, the responsibility was all on me. So I think the skills uh, through that period of time were really being able to trust that you had made the right decision and that, and that if you applied yourself to that, you would be able to, to manifest what you, what you believe it could be. Um, because I think doubting yourself at any point in that time was a sure, mm. sure way of <laughs> ruining the experience for sure. Um, and probably through that experience, actually just being able to trust my gut, more generally speaking, in day-to-day -day business decisions and things like that, that was a really big shift of being much more accountable for the outcome at the end of the day than if I was you know, in, a, in an environment where I had a boss who had yeah. a boss and, and everyone was kind of making the decisions down the chain and I was just responsible for execution. I think that that's a huge shift too. That's massive. And when you talk about that panic and fear, like these to me are big things that I've certainly faced and I'm sure a lot of people who want to do their own thing face as well. And so in hindsight, you know, you, this has been successful for you. What advice would you give to yourself if you could like talk to that person who was starting on the, out on this new venture all those years ago? It's funny, I would almost say the advice would be to go even harder. Like, <laughs> you know, I think there was, there was still almost too much trepidation. If I think, I do have a really clear recollection of who I was and, and what I felt like at that point in time. And I was still almost too hesitant, even though I was taking that leap. I think once I'd had exposure to what was going on overseas, um, mm. the people, the way people start projects and... and drive things in places like New York City or San Francisco, London, Paris, the approach is much um, more risk-taking. I think we're mm. still so risk-averse here in Australia, even with these side projects. We're not really prepared to double down. So true. And I probably would have maybe prepared myself better for that transition. You know, when you have a full-time job, you're never thinking about what it might be like if you suddenly decided to do your own thing the very next yeah. day. You know, yeah. you don't have a cushion, you don't have a buffer. Uh, and perhaps a bit of forward planning about the fact that this would be the direction my career would take um, mm. would have been helpful. I mean, <laughs> hindsight, isn't it beautiful? Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. One of the reasons I'm so interested to interview you is because you have a mashup of everything in your career and life that you seem to love. And I think similar to the collaborative economy, this way of working is new. It's fueled by the internet. Mm. There are other things in the zeitgeist that you've talked about, um, purpose-led careers. And it's never really been possible in history to have this kind of career. So it's new territory, there's multiple roles, it's location independent, and it's almost creating a career that's uniquely you. 
I'm always curious to see what you're up to because you've got an amazing Instagram and that's a very enviable <laughs> life. Um, but this, this way of working, has that been intentional? I feel really lucky for the era that we've been born into. I think it has been intentional, but it's also been afforded to me by the the kind of the year that I graduated school and, mm. and the way people have started to think about whether it's like activity-based working or um, flexible, you know, the, the, the empowerment of the millennial generation, all of these trends have actually added up to me being able to do this. Uh, but I would say that I have always chosen and have had the support to choose things that I was first and foremost passionate about. Like early in my schooling, I was thinking maybe I'd wanted to be a lawyer. I, mm. I enjoyed debating, whatever it was, but at the end of the day, just felt drawn to English, drama and French as the subjects that I would choose. They did not add up to a career. <laughs> Even now they would add you. up to a career. <laughs> but I, I loved them and I did well at them. And when it came time to choosing uh, what I would study at university, again, I could have chosen business or economics or you know law again. But um, my university, QUT, um, Queensland University of Technology, had just launched a pioneering course um, Bachelor of Creative Industries interdisciplinary, which allowed me to choose wow. three different sub minors, not sub majors, um, to study for three years that uh, ended up being journalism, creative writing, and theatre studies. And I did throw French in there as well. Um, <laughs> and that, even that combination of, of what I could pull together from really kind of disparate but connected fields, mm. again, didn't add up to a career at all, um, but gave me a different lens or perspective and I think that's certainly followed through my career uh, where I, I can bring something from one environment and put it into another mm. um, and and honing that and learning how to present that as valuable is probably the the, the lesson for my career. Mm, that's amazing and I, I actually relate to that because I studied arts and I remember having conversations with people at uni just being like what are we going to do with this degree but I felt like even then, that while it might not have prepared me for a very clear career path, it's actually it's like a really good life More skill. <laughs> yeah, so. exactly. I, I see friends who did study law or economics and I go, oh, or business, you know, you're so lucky because you have foundational skills that I'm trying to learn on the job, mm. but you're also completely stuck in the paradigm that you're educated in and right. are trying to understand how to, or you, you don't even place yourself in other contexts. Like the number of lawyers who would be much better off in startups where that, that knowledge and that way of thinking is so critical, but they're on this particular path of becoming a partner in a law firm yeah. and they don't consider what an alternative kind of career looks like for them, even though those skills are so valuable outside their context. I don't like the word life, work-life balance because I think it's all life, but we've talked before about not working all the time. So I will go into some of your other career um, history and things that you're working on now. There's a lot going on, but also it's important to you to not work all the time. How do you, it is. How do you make that happen? Um, I, I've always enjoyed my leisure time. I've always prioritised it. I know very quickly when I'm out of balance. Like I can certainly, when the work needs to be done, I'm there to do it. Uh, but I don't push myself beyond what I feel is a comfortable limit. I have done it before and it just is unpleasant for everybody around me. <laughs> I think that's the best indicator that, you know, mm. something's up if, if you're kind of intolerable to the, to the people closest <laughs> to you. Uh, but I, I think 
the the bigger reason well you know balance of that nature is is a big reason because I think you need to have the right headspace to do the best work um, and it's also knowing those limits for yourself but I think there is a lot of external pressure and you do see people who would essentially be hard-working role models that you sometimes wish you could be more like because they might do a better job they might execute better you know I, I'm notoriously a first draft kind of girl you know and I see people who are on their 11th 12th draft of mm. whatever they're doing and I'm like I really admire that level of dedication but I'm not a perfectionist I'm a let's do something and then let's do the next thing you know mm. let's not thrash this until it's it's you know perfect um, because perhaps we could get more done a different way that's not to say it's the only approach but I think that certainly gives me a different perspective to somebody who is is focused on getting the best outcome mm. with whatever they the do first time yeah yeah for, yeah, yeah. So let's move to your creative partnership and partnership with Josh, your husband. Yes. <laughs> so at the Do Lectures in 2015 in Tassie last year, you guys spoke together. And I just want to read out the opening to your bios of that. It's so beautiful. <laughs> so it says, Josh thinks Lauren is incredible. From day one, he has been enamoured with her intellect, wit and grace, which after nine years together still seem destined to grow. Lauren was first wowed by Josh's boundless creativity and imagination across a meeting room table 10 years ago and has been inspired by him ever since. He has a beautiful belief that anything's possible. You guys have worked on a number of projects together, including the Common Room co-working space where this interview is being recorded. How do you make these, this partnership so fulfilling and thriving, which it clearly is from just the way you guys, you know, after 10 years, you're still yeah. saying these nice <laughs> things about each other? Oh. It's perhaps it's because the roots were in a, a working relationship. Ironically, I think mm. it's not everybody's cup of tea, and I do see some of our friends wonder how we possibly make these decisions to work together and to be so intertwined at mm. a professional level. I, I'm sure it does impact our ability to to just chill out with each other sometimes, but we manage pretty well. I think um, I always probably knew that I I wanted a partner who was mo obviously motivated by the same things as me but in that being work-life balance and, and making choices around work that allowed the kind of flexibility that you want to have in your life uh, so it is kind of important for you know in those in those choices that we do collaborate in our work it, it just makes sense because uh, we tag team on things we motivate each other to to do better or to to make better choices for ourselves um, we certainly can help more strategically in, in different places. We do have very different skill sets and very different ways of working, as I'm sure you've observed. <laughs> um, but it is, I think it's really important to both of us that we do have a connection through our work uh, because, like you said before, work-life balance is kind of a misnomer. There is just the whole thing is, is life and mm. for us it, it ebbs and flows. You know, I, I can't think about what it would be like to have somebody who worked long hours in a career that I didn't understand and for us only to be able to see each mm. other after hours. You know, it's just not my cup of tea. The idea that we can drift in each in and out of each other's days, um, you know, thinking about the future and having families and things like mm. that, having those um, low boundaries and low walls to, um, you know, family being part of that that environment as well is, is really important to me too. Mm, sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's the dream. That's the dream, <laughs> definitely. So what made you guys decide to start the co-working spaces together. I have to give full credit to Josh 
on both co-working spaces, especially for their um, original inception, because he's got much more of a tolerance for creating in the physical realm. I'm much right. more of a um, online, you know, non-physical, non-tangible kind of creator. Uh, it sometimes has overwhelmed me this idea that we manage this space and own all of the stuff mm. in it because <laughs> I'm not a fan of stuff, as you would guess from my previous career. But, but it was at the same time we were working from home together. So there was a problem that we needed to solve for ourselves and Josh was prepared to, to kind of take the lead on creating homework, the first space. Really lucky to have the City of Sydney offer a grant program to get that off the ground. And I think for me, it's more about definitely the people in the space and the community that's been created out mm. of it. Uh, common Room was a natural next step in terms of something more permanent for more permanent uh, people, you know, people who were getting to that next stage of their business that they wanted to to uh, have a, a place that felt more like a, a home for their businesses, not something that was transient. Mm. Uh, and it has been a really amazing process to build Common Room from the ground up in a different way than homework was. And, you know, I, I definitely contributed with uh, building all the desks and carrying all the stuff upstairs. So I have, I have had a, a role to play, but certainly Josh is... Um, He's the mastermind and, and the one who's got more tolerance for the, the physical space management side of things. And it's, it's the physical space and it is a beautiful space, but it's mm. also the um, the spirit of the place. Mm. And yeah. the, the mantra of Common Room is good people, great projects. That I can probably take responsibility for. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. And so so that's a hint of, of what this space is, is yeah. nourishing and creating. Um, but what other elements do you think make up a great co-working space in general and common room specifically? Common room specifically, I think, has, in a, in a different way to other co-working spaces, I would say mm. there's so much buy-in from its residents in a way that they're almost more like partners than tenants, so to speak. That's been hugely critical uh, and has been probably founded in the way Wild One, um, who I, I know you've spoken to before, some of our they were our earliest tenants here and sort of moved in before we even had the space set up around them because they were really keen to be a part of this process so I think having those foundational tenants has attracted other incredible people mm. I'm always really amazed that well I'm certainly amazed these days at how much collaboration is actually going on between the ventures yes um, and that is kind of a unique situation because we haven't intentionally pulled in businesses who could work with each other. People have just found a way to do that mm. uh, in, in kind of uncommon ways sometimes. Uh, so I think that that foundation is really key in co-working spaces because it's nothing worse than coming to a space where you feel at odds with, with the people there. Mm. Um, and it's not to say everyone needs to be from the same discipline or have the same ethos even, but I think everyone just generally appreciates what's what's being attempted here. Mm. A space, I think at, at its core, it's a space for these fledgling businesses to get to the next level. That That's what underpins everything, despite what career trajectory or industry or discipline you come from. You know, we have accounting in here. That's like a very different kind of business, but we want that that business to do really well and we're here to support that that process. That's, that's part of it, I think. And it makes sense, actually, that you have different you know you have accounting there's yeah. a bookkeeper here yeah. communications people graphic design like these businesses can all help each other yes as well as being inspired by each mm -hmm. other and kind of seeing what's going on in the world around them definitely definitely so another role that you do among these other things it's probably I'm guessing your most um, time-consuming role at the moment is your head of community at reinventure fund which is a 50 million dollar venture fund focused on Australian entrepreneurs and disruptive technology in the financial services sector. 
What's involved in your role here? So I am really passionate about this particular role as a transition from my previous work in the collaborative consumption space. I spend a lot of time with startups, uh, particularly overseas, and, and learning more about what it takes in that early stage of the business. And uh, when I look at what's happening here in Australia, the sharing economy hasn't necessarily taken off here as it did overseas, but financial services, technology or fintech really has a chance to, to make a huge footprint in Australia and really put us on the map globally in terms of startup work. Uh, but my other motivation around getting involved on the venture capital side of things was that there are very few women, if any, um, mm. in VC, venture capital, here in Australia and overseas. It's like a chronic problem. Uh, I'm not necessarily on the investment side of things, but I realised through my work with collaborative consumption that this concept of community building and, and community strategy was pretty core to who I am and, and what I'm good at. And so I chatted with Simon and Danny, the, the founders of reInventure, about how in this really early stage of the fund, we have nine ventures in the portfolio, how we can start to leverage the strengths across the portfolio, especially given that they're all within this fintech space. Uh, so how can they have better connections with each other? How can reInventure play a really strong role in the broader um, fintech community and startup community in Australia? So there's a couple of dimensions to it uh, and we're still definitely navigating where the strengths are, but we've already had some really great wins um, in the six months that I've been doing the role, uh, particularly because of uh, the people that my, my bosses, Simon and Danny, are and the, the instrumental role they've already played in the fintech space. So um, we've recently launched Fintech Australia, which is a an association for Australian fintech startups, which has cool. been a huge effort in the first part of the year. Uh, and again, we'll really go to, to building um, the strength of Australia as a fintech community as well. That's great. And you actually spoke about this at um, Purpose, which was a Wild One event. We just talked about the, the events company Wild One. And the topic was how to community. So you've talked about some of, of what that, in, that involves. But what advice do you have for people who are looking to create a community in their own sector? Community is such a layered concept, but I think one that is gaining increasing relevance all the time. I mean, there's there's a very basic level of community in the way that people interact with each other, whether that's online or offline. But I think what we're seeing now, and certainly the, the direction that I'm pursuing, um, is this concept of community strategy as being integral to business strategy at a higher level. And I think that's where it's not just about meeting business objectives, but we're starting to see that, that concept of business with purpose um, being beneficial having that multi-stakeholder benefit in a way that business in this day and age doesn't necessarily have you know you've got the corporations selling products to people mm. sure they benefit from the product but there's not this kind of symbiotic relationship between consumer and producer or whatever it might be yeah. uh, so that concept of community is really ramping that up and suggesting that business needs to serve the community and in turn the community serves the business in some way and mm. that 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 loop or that cycle that's created is what will build purpose-led businesses of the future mm. uh, so I sorry in, a, in terms of advice um, I think it really is to push that concept of community up the chain in whatever environment you're in uh, and look at how it is a lever for business success. Mm. Um, the best work that I can point to and would 100% recommend um, is the work of CMX Hub in San Francisco. They okay. are the 
world-leading experts in community strategy and thought leadership. Uh, I recently completed a course that they are pioneering called Fundamentals of Community Strategy. And I think it's really helping people who are um, working in community to uh, become what they call community professionals, to really have that strategic lens to what they do. And I think that, um, that shift in the way of thinking about community will certainly drive that broader purpose-led agenda. Mm, it's so interesting because I think when community doesn't exist, it's hard to see what you're, what you're missing. Yes. And in creating community, it can take time. Well, it, it always takes time because it's nothing, you know, it can't happen overnight. Yeah. So there's an investment in time, there's trust. It's difficult for businesses to invest in this if they don't understand it, but That's it's right. so crucial. It is. I think the, the, what I said at the start of this kind of conversation was, you know, community is so layered and I think it's about understanding the kind of community that you're building. So mm. again, which is where CMX Hub has done a lot of thinking, you know, there's not just one type of community uh, and you need to understand what kind of community you're building. You know, is it a support community? Is it a feedback mm. community? There are different um, ways that you can interact with your customer base, your community. Um, and until you know what what that is, you're not going to be getting the best out of the relationship. But you That's will. So interesting. Yeah, it is really interesting. But you'll know that you're not because you'll be hampered. Your success will be hampered by that that kind of disconnect between mm. the community. That's such an interesting lens to think about the purpose of the community. Yeah. Because <laughs> so, yeah. often it's just like, oh, it's a, a Facebook group. Or a, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, we, we can talk to them all if we want to. It's like, no, that's actually not, that's kind of the place where the community inhabits, but it's the relationship, the, the dynamic of the relationship and the way they're empowered to, to kind of connect back with you that mm. is actually the real essence of community. Yeah, and that's, it, it makes me think about what communities I'm in, why I connect to them. Yeah, because yeah. some, some I don't, I guess. Exactly, they, yeah. Because they, they fail to have that purpose. Totally. And it's, there's nothing wrong with being kind of a, an observer in a community rather than a contributor. Like there is a, a spectrum of involvement at the same time. Um, but yeah, just understanding what those metrics are for your business and then again your observation of being in a community what it is that you get out of it Mm. um yeah is really interesting to think about so you're also an ambassador for b-lab australia new zealand which is all about using business to solve problems and not create them and you've talked about how this space is really interesting to you it's important to you and it's it's quite new you talked about in 2009 it wasn't really being talked about but now it is, it's here, it's happening, it's important to a lot of people. What opportunities are you seeing coming up in this space? Um, particularly for women, I guess, that's something yeah. that you're interested in, in as well. Definitely. Uh, I think it's intuitive for women to build these kinds of businesses. So B-Lab is a certification company uh, that has a an audit of, of businesses to measure them on their social, economic and environmental impact, so to speak, uh, looking for things like equality, um, obviously low, low environmental impact. Uh, and there's some really great companies that are flying the flag for this, including big ones like Etsy, um, Ben & Jerry's. Uh, they're, they're kind of making a statement that this is a possible pathway for, for the bigger businesses. Uh, but yeah, for, for women, I think uh, we're, we're going to start to see, well, I, I hope that women-led businesses will be designed in this way innately. I do think that there's something about that holistic view of, of business that, that we tend to approach it like. Uh, and in terms of the point of B Corp certification in the future, I think we're just seeing a generation of people who are 
looking for something more from their businesses. You know, it's the same as the community lens at the end of the day. And I, I think inherently B Corp businesses probably have really strong communities. Just, uh, you know, there's probably a strong correlation there as well. Mm. Um, so we're going to just start to ask for more from our businesses uh, and be using that as a buying, a purchasing decision, a mark of approval. Um, that's what I hope anyway. Mm, that's, that's great. I love the work that B Corp is doing. And it, it's a great way of connecting um, businesses, you know, because it's easy for a business to say that they're doing good or that they're not damaging environment, society, whatever. But this is a way of kind of showing and, and also that. helping businesses. You know, I've, I've talked to some B Corp businesses who yeah. have said, you know, maybe they had a social mission, mm. but they didn't realise that they weren't quite up to scratch on yes. their, the way they That's you know, right. treat their team or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's just sort of not knowing what you don't know. That's right. And I think, you know, the purchasing decision kind of, um, criteria is probably something that's still a bit further down the chain uh, because of the number of businesses we have. I do think it's actually about business leadership at this point and people being proud of the businesses they're running first mm. and foremost, mm. using that as their own internal metric for, you know, that they're doing a good job, um, less about the the end result from an economic perspective for themselves. But I mm-hmm. think there will be that that shift will happen as well. And even measuring that, I was talking to Sally from Wild One about this idea that. If a company is only answerable to the stakeholders in terms or shareholders, sorry, yeah, then legally they have to act in that way. Economic decisions <laughs> so, are, uh, yeah, that's right. I think, and that's probably the biggest shift and why community is so integral here because you're right. There's people are legally bound to making economically led decisions because of shareholder kind of obligations at this point. And if we do step back and look at the lens of stakeholders where it's everyone who's impacted by what your business does, uh, aka your community, Mm. (laughs) um, then you do start to make really different decisions. And it's kind of mind boggling to me that it's taken so long to get to this point or that, you know, you know, business, business used to be started because there was a purpose to serve. Now business is started because of economic benefit. And I feel like we're getting to a full loop. Yes. on that or there's a, there's a new wave of businesses emerging for sure. Definitely. And it's all about purpose. It's it all is. about the why. Yeah, that's right. So let's finish up on yoga, a big passion <laughs> of mine. Yes. And you're a certified yoga teacher and it's a big part of your life um, in your practice and you've travelled with yoga. What does it offer you? Oh, goodness, yoga. I, I love <laughs> it. I love... For me, I think doing my yoga teacher training was more of a personal journey, as we've talked about, rather than the idea that I was going to build a teaching practice. Um, You know, I I still use it where I can, but it was that connection to my physical body that Mm. I don't, I've never, I've always been very cerebral. I'm kind of very much in my head. I do have like strong gut instinct, but, but this was about body intelligence and learning how to use my body in a different way or understanding my my body in a different way which kind of sounds strange but I think it's just all part of balance you know if if you're neglecting that um understanding then you're kind of only living in part of yourself yeah um and I think that the theory around like the Ayurvedic um, medicine or Ayurvedic philosophy where it's very much about your body constitution and understanding what works for your body just demonstrates how unique we all are and how if you're going to be in balance you need to understand what works for you and you individually yes yes. Uh, so for me yoga is very much an individual practice Um, I love going to group classes I love teaching groups uh, but I know that it's about that what what my yoga teacher training gave me was that appreciation that it is a personal kind Mm. of practice as much as anything else and it isn't just about 
the poses, um, you know, as, as people often talk about, it's about that kind of holistic approach to, mm. to understanding who you are. Two things are coming to mind as you're speaking. One is something that I taught in a class recently, just about that self-awareness mm. and, and that, that inner guide, because it's, I do think a lot of the time we do look to other people for the answers yeah. and that's such an unfair thing to expect someone else to know what's right, you know, for Definitely. me. Yeah. So it's really interesting to get back in touch with that. And also um, thinking of Ken Robinson, who talks about creativity in schools mm. and he talked about academics using their bodies to get their heads to meetings yeah <laughs> so, you know their, their heads are all that matters totally and it's yeah. just it's so interesting that um you know not being in touch with the body is it happens so regularly yeah. like that's the crazy really yeah. if we're not thinking of all our senses definitely and I, I look at Josh and his friends who surf and I've always seen that as you know I've, I've never had that kind of same connection to something physical except mm. for yoga um, and I don't do it nearly enough. I mean, I'm not not as much of a regular practicer as I'd like to be, but I do think part of what else it offers is that sense of humility for how far you've got to go. Not yes. not just physically, but Always. even <laughs> even thinking about yogic philosophy, it's like I'm by far, I'm the furthest from a yogi possible. <laughs> I totally <laughs> dig it and I totally respect everyone who's living that life, but my life is has, I've got a long way to go if I want to kind of achieve some of those those ideals. <laughs> well, I guess that's the practice. Yeah. To me, and maybe it's the point that I'm at, but I relate to people yeah. who are struggling too. <laughs> totally, <laughs> so. totally. I think that's, that's the nice part about it. I think more people would relate at that level than at the other level. Yes. Um, so it's probably good to be able to be honest about it. <laughs> totally. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Lauren. Thank it's been you. amazing talking to you today. From day one, you've always been involved in stuff in your career, trying to create this unique path for yourself. So it's really inspiring to watch. And thanks for all your insights today. Thank you for talking with me, Joe. It's been great to explore. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this interview, you can find more at wearemakedo.com.au.